Welcome to Dementia Resilience with Jill Lorenz, a candid conversation as we learn about types of dementias, such as Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, frontal temporal, and Lewy body, and the effects on the people we love. Jill's years of dedication and experience help you adapt, overcome obstacles, and find positive outcomes. It's time for Dementia Resilience with Jill Lorenz. Hi, everybody. I hope you're having a good day. I want to talk today about some difficult uh, situations, like when a person has to give up their job and how, you know, businesses um, have to look at keeping someone employed. Um, not only that, but, you know, what what happens if somebody's unable to work any longer? And and how does that affect the person with the diagnosis? So the bottom line is that as um, someone starts accumulating losses, I mean independence, responsibilities, um, feeling like they're together, uh, maybe... You know, just things that that uh, come at an emotional cost, like um, people not trusting you anymore or not getting things done right at work and stuff like that. And, and you think people are taking over. When those kinds of things are happening, chances are you're losing your day-to-day connection with people, with your own past with your job, and that can cause a big problem because if you are having memory problems or cognitive problems, that's going to be difficult in terms of being able to still do some of the things that you like to do or need to do, and working is one of those things. So one of the problems with Alzheimer's is that when you are having memory loss, short-term memory loss is the first thing that goes. So you may not have any recollection at all of what something, what your boss said to you, of leaving the stove on, of getting in a car accident, um, you know? And, and, the, and the bottom line that a lot of people are kind of denying the reality of their situation even if the mistakes you are making are evident to everybody around you. And that's where we get into really pretty sticky wickets. Because if you're not able to assess your own limitations, you might feel like people are unfairly taking things away from you and they're taking over your life. And... That may make it more difficult for you to trust people or to feel like you are still part of the decision-making process. And sometimes the biggest area that that happens in, as the lead example I gave was, was when a person has to give up a job. 
Like if you have to drive for your job and you're getting in accidents or people are scared to ride with you. And if you are not keeping up at work, maybe they're writing some kind of a performance plan for you because they don't know what's going on and you're not telling them, but they're seeing some deficits in your work. They're seeing that you're not doing things at the level that you usually did them at. And now um, they are asking you to leave. Now, sometimes if a job isn't terribly demanding, like, for example, my mom worked at a gift shop at a hospital, and they kept her working there for a long time because they had jobs that were easy for her to do, like stocking the shelves. It's easy to say, go put all those bears on the shelves or put these plaques over where the plaques are or something like that. And she could find that easy enough. But if you are at a job where you have to compute calculations and you have to um, be in charge of maybe all the inventory of a plant or a business or something like that, um, that could be difficult. If you work in a nursery where you're just pruning flowers and it's something you've already done, always done, maybe that's okay. But when these changes come, if the if the boss or the company can't find something easy for you to do, then you have to look at it yourself. Am I going to tell them? Am I going to talk to them about my diagnosis? Your choices are you just give up the job or you let them fire you. But if you decide you want to try and keep it, the two things you have to really consider are the emotional and psychological adjustments involved with that job and with the major changes you're going to see with that job and the financial changes that are going to happen if you leave that job. And... It's a big part of who you are. Most of us feel like, to a degree, we are our work. We spend so much time doing the jobs that we have, we don't know ourselves if we're not doing it anymore. And especially if you have clients, you know, um, they might depend on you. They might think you're a valued member of society. I had something similar to that today myself, and I don't have Alzheimer's, but I can relate it to this topic. So I uh, stopped before I came into the studio at one of my friend's shop, and she is a creator. She's a designer of clothing, and she's got a beautiful shop in downtown Denver. And she had posted something online, and I wanted to go down and see this particular leopard print dress that I just absolutely loved. I saw it two years ago, and I loved it then. And I saw she still had it, and I decided I'd go down and see if I could try it on. And I was talking to her about kind of looking forward to retirement maybe in the next year. And she said, but Jill, your clients need you. You... You are making an impact in Denver. There's nobody doing what you do. And even your podcasters, she didn't know of any other podcast like mine. And she was trying to tell me that 
she does not want to see me leave this role because she thinks it will create a huge deficit in the Denver metropolitan area and maybe even the world for those of you that find my talks and my podcast and my lectures and things like that helpful. And I appreciate that because I really enjoy working with people and I can see going another year or so and then maybe doing part-time work for the next few years, keeping my podcast so that I'm still reaching the masses and, and answering your questions and trying to help people that don't have help in the small crevices around the world. But when she said that to me, it got me thinking about this subject and why a person who's impaired might resist giving up their job, saying nothing's wrong. I don't want to retire. That'll be painful. It'll be distressing. So what do you do when you're in a situation like that? For me, I just discuss it with my husband and we'll probably retire together and we'll figure out when we're going to do that. Um, but for somebody who has a dementing illness, maybe you should contact a social worker or a counselor or something to talk it through. That could be invaluable to you. And you also have to consider the financial future, like I was saying a minute ago, because being retired can organically grow difficult problems. Um, you have to pay your own insurance, which can cost about 2000 per person a month. If you add that up, that's 24, let's see, 12 times two is 24, 24,000 a month for two people or for a year for two people. That's $48,000 a year. If you have to pay your own insurance. And usually if you leave a job and retire, you get COBRA for a year and then you have to start paying. But if you have to leave early because um, of a dementing illness, you might be entitled to some retirement and disability benefits. And I can tell you in a lot of cases, benefits have been denied for people with Alzheimer's, they still label it as senility and senility isn't a disease. And so if somebody just says you have dementia or you have uh, senility, you can't get coverage. You can't get disability coverage. You have to have a diagnosis. That's one of the reasons why it's important to talk to somebody and get them out of the denial state so that you can get them the benefits that they are due. And we have a Social Security Disability Act that provides assistance. And there's also a supplemental disability income that we give to people who have become disabled. But to get that, you have to have worked 20 out of the last 40 calendar quarters and you're not able to do any gainful work for money because 
of a medically determinable physical or mental illness that will result in death or has lasted for the last 12 months. So when you leave a job, you can't wait a year or two to try to get this disability insurance. They won't give it to you. And the amount of that benefit is based on the, the t- how much you earned at the time you stopped working. So if you try and get a part-time job or something like that, or a lower-paying job before you apply for that supplemental disability or the Social Security disability, um, you get that amount of money from that job that you went to that was lower paying. And sometimes people with Alzheimer's don't have any problems at all getting the benefits, but sometimes the claims are denied. And if you're denied disability on your initial application, don't give up. Keep trying and trying and trying. If you are persistent through the appeals process, a lot of times they'll reverse it and they'll change their mind. But this is why it's super important to have an actual diagnosis. And if you have to leave your job and you are in a high-paying position, that's the only way you're going to get it is if you apply immediately because you're leaving your job. Then, then it's based on that amount of money, not some volunteer job that you did. So all this leads to other things like not being able to manage money. That's a huge issue. So, you know, it always starts with people not being able to balance their checkbook. Um, they can't make change for you if you if they owe you something back. Um, they're not getting their bills turned in on time. Um, and if you try and change their checkbook writing to electronic payments, uh, they give you all kinds of grief. They're not happy with you. They think you're stealing their money. Um, they're trying to figure out, you know, why it's important to you to do this to them. I had a client, uh, he's now moved into a care community, but he was always uh, a bookkeeper in his life. And what had happened was someone in the company uh, did an audit of the books because there were some problems and they found out that the books were a mess. I've also seen situations where People with Alzheimer's give, like, money to their neighbors or they hide it someplace. They hide, they put it in their purse and they hide their purse. Um, they're always thinking people, people are stealing from them. And money, to everyone I know, represents independence. And with that, it isn't like every single day we go to our mom or dad or our sister or whatever and say, give us give us access to your bank account because they might tell you to, you know, F off, right? They might say, no, it's none of your business. 
And they're really worried that you're going to make them give up control of their finances. And sometimes you can just correct some of the problems that are happening, uh, but not always. And if you don't have a power of attorney, then you're really not going to be able to do it. And you can't just take the person's checkbook away without their approval. If you do, you better write something down saying, I'm allowing my son or daughter to take care of my checkbook and put the note on the refrigerator or something so that person can refer to it over and over again because I'll tell you, it won't take but a New York minute for them to say you're stealing. And it's upsetting when they accuse you of stealing. But if you think about it, it's really kind of human nature You know, everybody's always told us, be careful with your money. And if you can't find money, you think it's disappeared. You think it's stolen. And when somebody's got a brain impairment, they're not able to really assess what is happening. And they become anxious. And they have short-term memory. And they get into arguments with you because they think you took something from them that you know you actually didn't. Sometimes it's good to just give them a little bit of cash to have on hand because if they think that they don't have any money and they think you're taking it all the time, then then this just becomes a nightmare. And it's, in my mind, it's better to go over these financial things with people before they get too far along because if you don't, um, you get all these problems that linger and linger and linger and linger. And that is absolutely no good. One way, you know, I've I've said this before on other shows, but again, you know, I get new listeners every day. One way to do that is let the person sit down with you while you are doing them on the computer or show them that the bank has taken out that money um, the day before in an electronic phase or have them... uh, Put the check in the envelope when you sign it and send it on. Um, these are things that just will make your life a whole lot easier. Just letting them be a part of it. Ask the bank if you can get blank checks that are that don't mean anything and let the person write those checks out. And you can put them in. The, they can write them themselves. And then you can put it in the envelope. Just don't seal it and move it aside. Um, and then uh, put the real check in later after you're all done. Whatever it takes, do it. Because money matters cause big problems. Suspicion breeds anxiety and anger. And you better really think about ways to make those money matters less distressing or they're going to become an absolute nightmare for you. And if you have to write checks for them and stuff like that, you might think that it's not really a very nice or a good way to sort of do things around the confused person. You know, like you're duping them or something. But I think that they feel more independent and less tired and less 
anxious. And it helps you as the care partner to still do a really good job for him and keep it from growing into an extreme, catastrophic, ridiculous fight every day over money matters. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back talking about when a person can no longer drive safely. Living and working with Alzheimer's and other dementias can often be challenging. Summit Resilience Training provides education, utilizing non-medical approaches for those who work with our friends affected by dementia. Believing families still need one-on-one assistance, we provide classes which help them understand the diseases affecting their loved ones, offering strategies and techniques for success with activities of daily living and working with confusing behaviors. We offer in-home assessments to clarify symptoms of dementia diseases and help families work together to find moments of joy while living with memory loss and impairment. Education programs instilling person-centered care philosophies are offered for professional caregivers working in communities and homes, which can be customized for their staff. Training is also available for first responders, such as law enforcement, fire, and EMT personnel. We are passionate that people with dementias, such as Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, and others, are approached with compassion and understanding, and those who work with them have all the tools they need for success. Call us at Summit Resilience Training, 303-420-6988 to schedule a class or in-home assessment. Visit our website at summitresiliencetraining.com for more information. Welcome back to Dementia Resilience with Jill Lorenz. Okay. So the other big part of this, besides finances... And work, I mentioned before, is driving. I've done full shows, but it's been probably two years or better since the last time I did a show on how to take the car keys away. I get more complaints in the mild cognitive impairment and early stage on this subject than anything else. And it's because the time comes... When you realize your parent or your spouse isn't driving safely, you can see their limits. But they might be unwilling to give up driving. And as a whole, people with various dementias like Alzheimer's, Lewy body, especially frontal temporal, who continue to drive are way more likely to have accidents as opposed to people their age. And for most drivers, we think that driving is a skill that we know so well that we think it's automatic. We go back and forth to work every day You know, and we've got a zillion things on our mind. I mean, seriously. We could be looking at the amount of people. We can be cursing at the morons for changing lanes on us. We could be thinking about our phones and, you know, who's answered our social media posts. We could be listening to music. 
We could be listening to audiobooks. We could be dictating something while we're driving. I've seen people eating and reading the paper while they're driving. I see this on highways. Seriously. And although it doesn't take that much concentration to pay attention to the road and drive, but you just let that traffic pattern change one little bit. Somebody changes lanes. Oh, I swear, just on the drive down to the studio today, I had three people change lanes where there was no room in front of me. Didn't even look. They would have hit me in a New York minute if I was not paying attention. And those reaction times matter. They matter because if you're not able to focus on the road right in front of you and immediately respond really quickly to a crisis, somebody slams on their brakes, somebody hits somebody, even though it's a well-learned and honed skill, the person who is confused can still you know, seem like they're driving okay. They can appear like they're all right when they're driving and really not be safe. In my mind, driving requires a highly complex interaction of your eyes, of your brain, of your muscle movement, the ability to troubleshoot, solve complicated problems really quick. And if you are having memory issues or cognitive issues, you might have lost the ability to respond appropriately, to be able to react with the timing that you need to avoid an accident. And if you're just relying on the habits of driving, you're going to use your habitual responses And try to make them work in a new response situation, and it's not going to work. And when people make the decision to stop driving for themselves, when they realize that they're not as sharp as they used to be, or they've been in an accident that really made them distressed or whatever, um, if they can say to themselves, I don't want to drive anymore, this is so much easier. So much easier. But if they don't, It's your responsibility to them and everyone else to assess whether or not they're dangerous on the road and intervene if you have to. And if they have a diagnosis and you don't do something about it, you could be held liable. And unfortunately... These are some of the first things that you have to do when somebody's having problems. It's one of the first big issues that you have to take control of. And nobody wants to do it. People are hesitant to do it. You're going to be relieved once you do it. I'm relieved once you do it. When I work with families and I do an in-home assessment and they say they are no longer letting somebody drive, I seriously say, and they think I'm joking, on behalf of the people in the state of Colorado, I thank you. We don't need one more driver out there that's not paying attention to the road. There's already enough people who are not doing that. 
And there's a ton of controversy around this. Can they, can they drive well? Can they not drive well? Is there a test they can take? A trained occupational therapist, they can evaluate driving skills if they are brave enough to drive with you. Um, you can go to a uh, driving simulation place, but they're expensive. They're around $500 to $750, depending on where you are. And oftentimes you can't get in without a referral from a neurologist, and you can't get your person to a neurologist. What a mess. It's a vicious circle. But what you and others should be looking at is not only their reaction time, but do they have good enough vision? Do they need glasses? When they have glasses, do they still have good enough vision? Can they see in front of them and out of the corners of their eyes, you know, that whole peripheral vision thing? Well, when I teach classes, I tell people, from the beginning, their peripheral vision starts to go away. And that happens in the early stage. And by the time they get to late stage, it's like looking through binoculars. So that goes away really quick. So if you can't see somebody coming from the side, chances are you're not going to be safe on the road. And then other parts to this are... You know, what is their perception of driving? Is their sensory information working? Do they understand that they have to be able to see well and get that information into their brain so that they can, you know, quickly identify if something out of the ordinary is happening like a little kid running out of the street to get a ball or somebody turning a corner that shouldn't or, um, you know, things like that. These are the driving abilities that we think we need to have when the person isn't in a dementing state. So what happens when they're not? And there's a bunch of, there's a bunch of this stuff. So, like, can they hear okay? Do they have to have a hearing aid? Can they hear car horns? Can they hear sirens? And how quickly can they react to pull over if they hear an emergency vehicle coming? How quickly can they react if they have to brake? And I'm not picking on older people. I'm one of you, okay? But our reaction times slow down. And we are slower than young people. Now, in all fairness, I will say young people have a tendency to tailgate and drive too fast. And we don't do that. Uh, We have a tendency to drive slower. I, you know, I always turn the radio down so I can see better. If anybody is old, you know what I mean by that, right? It just feels like if the music is too loud, you can focus better on the road. It was my little joke of the day, but 
But these are some of the problems that we see when people are just getting older in general. And being able to make appropriate decisions and doing them quick and doing them calmly and not being freaked out and having the hair raise up on the back of your neck and all that kind of stuff um, is what helps us when that little kid runs out after the ball, right? We can stop. We know what we need to do. And a lot of times a person with dementia get very upset if several things are happening all at once. That makes them more confused. You can see the problems in their face. This happens in the house. It happens in the car. It happens anywhere. And when we're upset, we lose our coordination. Because if we don't have our eyes and our hands and our feet all working together, um, not good. Not good. This is where... We get clumsy. This is where we're not as alert as we should be. You have to know what's going on all the way around you. If you don't, you know, this is where accidents happen. And the truth of the matter is, and people know this, that when you're having trouble with your job, when you're having trouble with your finances, when your people are harping on you about your poor driving skills, all the other problems start to come up. It leads us to something else. It's like pulling a thread on a sweater. Now we can look at all the times that you were confused about r- routes that you were supposed to take. Maybe you're driving too slow. Maybe you're screaming at everybody on the road. Maybe you always did scream at people on the road. I don't know. Um, I see this all the time when family members tell me when they get upset or they get nervous when they're driving, they mean to hit the brake and they hit the accelerator and run into people. And when they really start thinking that everybody on the road is you know, the enemy and out to get them, uh, that's also something that you need to think about. And if they're adding alcohol or anything like that, they're self-medicating, definitely don't put them behind the wheel of a car. That's a horrible combination. And you've got to figure that out. You know, I I tell my clients, use the grandchild test. Would you allow your grandchild or, or your child to sit in a car with somebody with Alzheimer's? Let them be a passenger. If you wouldn't, then they shouldn't be on the road. And if you can, just discuss it with the person right away. If they're able to understand what you're telling them, give them facts about the things that maybe they're doing wrong and initiate that discussion um, that hopefully will bring them to a place of understanding. You know, we definitely know that people with brain impairments are 
less able to tolerate criticism, so they get upset and they cry and they get angry at you and everything else. So don't start with your driving is terrible. Da 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 da. da all the things you're doing wrong. You could say something like, it feels like maybe you're getting a little absent-minded about stoplights. Maybe they'll admit that they're having some problems. Maybe they won't. But if you can, look for ways to help them save face and don't embarrass them. Don't ruin their self-image because this is a big part of who they are. Driving is a huge part of independence. Offer some alternatives. All drive today. You can look at the scenery. I had a situation with my sister uh, that I'm just so proud of her because she called me up and said she had been in an accident and it was a four-way stop in the small town that she lives in and the person that she hit didn't want her to call the police. And um, we think it was because that person didn't have any insurance and wasn't sure whose fault it was. But about six months later, we got her a new vehicle, brand new vehicle. She'd only had it a week and she called me and said she'd been in an accident. She teen-boned somebody at a stoplight. And she said witnesses said that she ran a red light. She said she never saw the light turn yellow, that it went from green straight to red. Well, there's not a stoplight on the planet that does that. But I gave her the benefit of the doubt and said, well, you know, we'll just have to go with the witnesses in the in the situation. But she actually said to me, I don't want to drive anymore. I'll be driving Miss Daisy. So we worked it out where when family members go to the store or somebody's going to an event in their town or something like that to call her and ask her if she'd like to go or if she needs a ride. It's worked out very, very well. I don't think she regrets driving at all. I think she's got some peace of mind with it. But that isn't true of everybody. I'm really proud of her. Most people have terrible fights. Terrible, terrible fights. And oftentimes, if you go to a doctor, they'll help you and tell the person that they have to go and take a driving test. Um... And the doctors will notify the Department of Motor Vehicles. And you might get a letter saying you're not able to drive until you can come in and do a, a driver's test, a written test and a driving test. But it helps sometimes if you can get a doctor or a lawyer to do it. And if somebody tells you you can't drive, you know, maybe make it somebody else being the bad guy. It's all right with me. Whatever you have to do to get them to a place where they're not angry at you for taking that position and taking their car keys away, good for you. And if you can't get somebody to help you, disable the car. 
Remove the distributor cap or the wire to the distributor. It's an easy thing to do. And you can put it back in or replace it when you want to drive the car again. And even a gas station attendant, well, back in the day, if they had places where you drove up and there was a gas station attendant, they could tell you how to do it. But somebody at a, um auto shop could tell you for sure. And sometimes states have rules about people driving that have dementia anyway. And they can give uh, just identification cards that people can use for banking and, you know, when they have to have proof of anything like going on vacation or something like that, flying on a plane. So try to do that. And if neighbors or something like that call in or a doctor calls in, um, the states will issue, you know, a summons or a written opinion and say, you can't drive. So find out from your Department of Motor Vehicles what the policy is in your area for a person with some type of degenerative brain disease. Because if you let them drive and they've been told by a physician or the state, you can be negligent if that person has an accident. If someone's injured or killed, you're in big trouble. Well, I think these are the kind of things that I think you as my listeners need. You need straight talk. You need to know how to do things. You need to know where you're liable. And, you know, we're going to work through these things. I'm hoping to have a guest the next time I get on the air with you. And I want the lady that was from that really phenomenal care community to be on the show. I'm going to work on that. And in the future, I'm going to do a show about when a person can't live alone. What are some of the problems that we see? When do you make that decision? I have just recently been working on a case that was uh, really difficult. Uh, Two years of having adult protective services and a local police department and the criminal justice system and a care community. I mean, it went on and on and on and on. And I finally got that solved. So I'm going to talk to you about how those situations unfold and how one of my clients nearly was charged with neglect because she was dragging her feet about moving her people from an unsafe house. I'll do that on an upcoming show. And my prayers and thoughts are with all of you. And to the people in England, I just want to say I have a huge contingency of listeners in England. I want to tell you how deeply sorry I am about Queen Elizabeth II and the pain and the loss that you are all feeling right now. So just know that the people of the United States, many, many millions of people, uh, care deeply, feel your loss, and our hearts and prayers are with you. I'll see you next week on Dementia Resilience with Jill Lorenz. been listening to Dementia Resilience with Jill Lorenz. To learn more about her resources, services, classes, or to book speaking engagements, visit Jill's website at summitresiliencetraining.com. 
A new podcast drops every Tuesday, so join us as we learn more about dementias, resilience, and overcoming obstacles to find a positive outcome. Dementia Resilience with Jill Lorenz can be found on your favorite podcast provider. Please subscribe and give us a five-star rating. Musical and technical support provided by Brian Hunter. See you next week.